I can still remember a moment where I was climbing when I was really light. I just remember feeling like I was water over the rock. Growing up, my personality was always like, I want to be better than I am. I can be better than I am. To me, it was just like I was putting in the work to be a strong climber, and that was my goal, and that's the only thing that mattered. I just wanted to be the best rock climber possible. I just remember having no energy. I didn't like climbing. I knew that I was depressed, and I knew this wasn't sustainable, but I was winning. You deprive yourself, you starve yourself, and then you send. Even though you knew that this person was doing it and you were doing it, the whole community kind of like praised you for doing it, you couldn't really talk about it. I would have considered her to be one of my closest friends then. And it was the big, huge, tiny, skinny elephant in the room. When I first started writing for the climbing magazines, I pitched stories about this, but no one was interested. No one wants to hear about eating disorders. Total downer. But now it's time. We're going to talk about it. Hi, Caroline, and welcome to Great Wide Open. Hi, Lisa. It's so good to see you. It's been forever. It's great to see you. My guest today is Caroline Treadway, and she has just released a, a documentary about eating disorders in rock climbing. Caroline, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what spurred you to want to make this documentary? I'm a writer, first of all, and um, I've been writing for climbing magazines for over 10 years. Um, and I've been shooting, I'm a photographer as well. Um, but really, I always wanted to be a good storyteller. And so, um, yeah, actually, I listened to a lot of Ira Glass during when I was working on this. <laughs> um, and I listened to, yeah, Dolly Parton's America, that podcast, which gave me a lot of inspiration. Yeah, and I just started, you know, kind of thinking like, okay, it's COVID. And <laughs> I had started this project in July of 2019 and um, shot most of the interviews, um, some about half the interviews in September and October of 2019 and then COVID hit um, and I was kind of housebound, you know, so this was the perfect thing to work on. Um, but it's the first film that I've ever made, which is just really exciting, you know, that it's having this response which I never expected. <laughs> and I'm just like completely humbled and blown away. The title of your film is Light and you have these great illustrations. The character who looks like she resembles you flicks on a light switch. To me, that was like a metaphor of what one of the overriding themes that you're trying to accomplish with this film is to like put this very topic in the light. And it's a very personal topic for you. Yes, it's a very personal topic for me and apparently for a lot of people. And I think light, the title came to me like right away when I thought about the title, I was like, oh, light. <laughs> so it wasn't something I thought about very hard. And people would be like, well, what do you mean by light? <laughs> you know, and there's a lot of things that light refers to that I tried to like incorporate as themes in the film in different ways and in different levels. Certainly shining a light on something 
was a big metaphor. And shining um, a light on lightness. Shining a light on lightness. I think um, providing a little bit of light right now at this time for people is important. And it um, was my ultimate goal, um, was to be able to help as many people as possible. And I think that um, obviously lightness, you know, in terms of like feeling light, right? Yeah, and then also the lightness that comes from like connecting with community, you know, versus the isolation and, and darkness that happens when people are really in these things, you know, it can be so isolating. It, it is so isolating. And we see that with your protagonists in this film and primarily with Emily Harrington and Angela Payne, who are two of America's premier rock climbers. They're and amazing. Totally amazing. And we get to see them express their battles with eating disorders, disordered eating, and performance rock climbing, and also with their relationship with each other and their relationship with the whole world around them. Even these two gals who live together as roommates. Exactly. It's really hard to talk about this stuff. And that's part of why I made this film. I mean, I've kind of been on both sides of it. Like I've been the person who's been struggling and I've also tried to talk to friends about it. And like Nina says in the film, it hasn't really gone that well. <laughs> and so this film felt like a way for me to try to help people without like pointing the finger. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's so easy to feel judged. You know, there's a lot of judgment that happens that we're doing to others, that we hear other people doing towards others, others and that we do towards ourselves and our bodies unnecessarily. And I think as an athlete, there's this weird thing that it's almost like people have agency over being able to comment about your physicality because you're doing something that's physical and somehow that seems to extend into like people's access to what they can say or not say to you. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing how accepted it, it is to hear people say negative things about their body, about bodies. Can we swear on the show? Oh, we cannot swear on the show. I can't imagine like how many times I've heard like fat bleep, you know, mm -hmm. people saying that about themselves. Like, oh, I'm such, so fat. Like I'm so, you know, especially guys. I feel like that's really more common for, to hear that men criticizing their bodies out loud than, than women. Not only just criticizing their bodies, but as is clear with this sport and a lot of sports, walking that tightrope between being a fit person and teetering into um, a mental and emotional disordered state. Yeah. I think that athletes didn't push themselves. They wouldn't be the great athletes that they are. You know, you have to be able to push yourself, but in the right ways, I think. And I don't know exactly what the right ways are. <laughs> I have a feeling that like if I had spent half the amount of energy worrying about food and turned that towards some kind of mental training about climbing and confidence and maybe just climbing on different rock types, different styles, expanding my skill set, then I think that would have been energy better used.
Yeah, and it's a it's a really deep and possibly unanswerable question of how it's so prevalent that people get to that point where they fixate on this one thing, which is in order to do better, I need to be lighter. Yes, it really simplifies it down into something that you see immediate results, right? I mean, even if you don't drink water for a day, you'll drop weight, right? Yeah, so I think it gives people an immediate sense of gratification that they're getting somewhere. But there's the other half of the equation, which is the strength part. And that part is harder to work on, I think. And you don't see as immediate results, right? You have to look at that over time. I'm not a professional athlete, you know what I mean? I'm just a writer. Like, I don't know what it takes to be a, a superhuman like that. But I, but I know that those people do need to push themselves hard. And I think like sometimes pushing yourself gets hard, gets like funneled into pushing yourself hard in terms of deprivation. Well, and I think that you actually, you know, you say you're not a, a professional climber, professional athlete, but you've been climbing for a really long time. You know, we both have been around climbing for a really long time. Yes. And regardless of whether you are climbing the hardest routes in the world or you're climbing the hardest routes for you, when you get really intimately involved with a sport like climbing you're always playing that negotiating game of you know very few people i have met a few people who just like really want to go out and enjoy themselves and just move over rock but the vast majority of people want to get better whatever that getting better is to them they want to climb their first 12a or they want to climb a v3 or a v13 whatever that range is and so you immediately start this negotiation with your training and with all the things and you look at what other people are doing and whether you're influenced by other people or not oftentimes what people come to is that they see the light the ripped the you know this certain body image and try to force their body whatever it is to be that image yeah because i think people are you know told that if we look a certain way we'll feel a certain way will be something different than what we are. It's a fine line of self-acceptance and pushing yourself, right? <laughs> it's totally a fine, a fine line of that. Climbing's not an easy sport. It does demand a lot from you physically. The climbers that we meet in your film are basically hanging their entire body weight repeatedly and sometimes really aggressively and violently on the tiniest parts of their body, which are their fingers. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot to do that and it takes a lot to maintain the fitness that they're, you know, performing at without going over the edge. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, you can't just tell by looking at somebody if they have a problem. No. You really can't. Angie, Angie Payne says in the movie that you couldn't pay her enough to go back to that time. And I totally believe her. However, I think if a lot of us looked back at that time when we were in that moment, there's probably not an amount of money that you could get to get you out of it because you're so sucked into the feedback loop. I mean, I think it's important to try and expand your mind, you know, (laughs) to expand your concept of what you think about yourself, what you think about others. Um, And hopefully this is like doing that for people a little bit, you know, 
And I'm not saying every climber has, you know, anorexia or bulimia or, a, or overeating or whatever, but it's like, I think it's the prevalence of the normalcy of both not talking about it and just so many people seemingly kind of obsessed with food and restricting and, and training. And I, I just don't hear as many people talking about, for example, like the importance of rest. Also intangibles, like it's not just about the calories you eat, right? It's about the quality of the food and, and, and the connection that you're having with people over food. And I think that that's one of the reasons why eating disorders can be so isolating is that you're missing all of the connection that happens over meals because you're like trying to avoid meals, right? And so you don't get that, that human, whatever it is, you know, that I think we need that connection. One of the, one of the guests in your film, um, Dr. Jennifer Guadiani, Guadiani, Guadiani. She's amazing. Oh my gosh. And she, she talks about how a mammal who's malnourished isn't going to be playful. They're not going to be creative and they're not gonna be adventurous. They're gonna get really rigid, rule-bound, and serious. That's what happens to a lot of people when they've cut too much energy intake. They're losing their artistic self, they're losing their social self, they're losing their emotional self, and all that can be a negative effect on what you think you're doing all this for, which is performance. It's a vicious cycle, I think. And yeah, like Dr. Chi says, you know, um, whatever the motivation for restricting, like the effect on our brains and bodies is the same. Your metabolism slows down, like you <laughs> tend to get more anxious and, and sleep not as well. I mean, this is according to Dr. G, and definitely lots of people have said that. And you start to develop more sort of obsessive behaviors and yeah, your nervous system just goes through the roof. Like, I'm not a health expert, but there's this thing called the Minnesota, um, it's like the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. So essentially they found in that experiment, which was in the 40s, that they had induced eating disorders in people by starving them. So essentially you can get an eating disorder by not eating enough. Actually, a lot of the climbers who I interviewed for this project said that they're kind of, moment where they started to go downhill was on a, a climbing trip, like a road trip, where they just weren't eating enough. And that sort of set it off because then they lost a little bit of weight and suddenly were climbing harder and everyone was like, oh my gosh, you look great, you know? Even people who are sick and lose weight because of sicknesses, like get compliments on their body being thinner. It's just so, so messed up. And I feel like on the other side in our sport, we've really like cling on to like certain people who didn't fit that mold. Here's our example of someone who can, someone who can do perform at a high level and not be, you know, it was almost like parading this person like a novelty item. Yeah, it's exactly like, hey, look, we're fine. Like that person's yeah, we have bigger. You know, that's just so messed up in so many ways. But when you think about the effect of like that mentality in a community, it is pretty dark. To be honest, like, did Emily Harrington have a chance? 
you know, at not struggling with this stuff. That's how she grew up. She was surrounded by it. Not like it's anybody's fault. You know, she has wonderful parents and like everybody loves her. I think that's a really, you know, important point is that our knowledge of Emily is, yeah, she has wonderful parents who love her. She had wonderful friends and still had to struggle with this. And I think for the people, you know, one of the things you really talk about in the film is talking about this and trying to approach people. When someone is in the throes of an eating disorder, no matter how great their parents are or how poor their relationship is with their parents or with their friends or their community. And I think this is one of the great questions that I don't know if we'll ever have an answer to is like, what is the right way or what is the wrong way to approach it? Do you talk to someone or do you just ignore the skinny elephant in the living room? In your own personal journey with this, you talk about being younger and being hospitalized and Mm -hmm how that typically does not work and was not for you the solution to wellness. No, I don't think force feeding people, um, you know, and punishing them for not eating is the way to, to heal from an eating disorder. (laughs) So much of it has to come from within the person themselves just like with any disorder, with um, a drug or alcohol problem or any type of addiction, no matter what support or lack of support, you know, whether it's tough love or whether it's support, what is gonna turn that switch? What is gonna flick on that light switch in that person to want to go back into the light? Right, well, I think for me, it was seeing it, it's hard to see things in yourself sometimes right first you see them maybe in other people so you know seeing friends go through it that just you want to help right you don't you don't want them to go go into that the hospital was an interesting experience because i i wouldn't trade it for the world honestly it was definitely like one of those character building experiences but i ate like I went to the hospital twice and one of the times was like, I think it was a few weeks at a time. And I had one, there was one other eating disorder patient in there. There was a bunch of other people in there for all kinds of things. It was a pretty entertaining place to be honest, but, um, but dark, you know, obviously. But yeah, my, so I ate with the one other eating disorder girl. She was like 11, I was like 17 or something. I mean, for weeks I ate with this, every meal with this girl and like the entire plate would end up on her head and all over her and she was so upset. And then she had to get a tube put down her stomach and I ate alone, you know? So I think that um, when you expand your experiences in life in general and you see how different people are struggling with things in like different ways, you're, it's like, well, I'm, I'm definitely like, doing okay, you know, relatively speaking, I'm like, I'm doing okay. Like, I'm going to be okay. I don't know if that girl was ever okay. You know, I never saw her again. I don't even remember her name. I was just trying to tell her it's okay. It's going to be okay. You know? And I think that that's just a little bit of my personality. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I don't shy away from the darkness. 
yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who have really intense, you know, experiences with this stuff. And I know a lot of climbers might not be to that extreme, but I still think that like, there's this in between, you know, of the extremes that a lot of people exist in, you know? And cause you can't be too sick and perform. So there is that zone that a lot of these athletes are in where you, what do, what do you say? Are you okay? Are you doing okay? Because they probably think they're doing fine and are very defensive about it because they're in that zone that's over the line, but they're not sick. Right. Or like debilitatedly physically sick. Yeah. So I had one friend, I've had a couple of friends over the years that, um, well, one friend in particular, you probably know her, Robin Pearl. And when I was struggling at one point, she used to just, she never said anything really to me about it, but she just invited me over and we would cook together. And, and I think like cooking food for me has really helped me recover. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, um, I have, I was lucky to grow up in a family where like my mom and I cooked together. So I had some, we ate healthy foods and vegetables and like, so I had an original good association with food. Um, that was something that I found that I returned to. And when I started really cooking like bone broths and, you know, kind of really nourishing foods, um, that was really empowering for me. And like eating with friends was really transformative for me. Um, so more of like the communal experience. It's more like the vibe, right? It's like some, my friend wasn't judging me and it was just the two of us and we could just eat. Angie talks about being roommates with Emily and she's trying to emerge from this. I'm not sure what spurred her on or what kind of support she had or, you know, she talked about walking by a mirror one day and for some reason that day was different. But at the same time, she's witnessing Emily going through a struggle with an eating disorder and also being a high performing climber. And it ends up that they, at that time, they can't be supportive of each other. And Ange finds herself pulling away because she doesn't, she's afraid of getting sucked back in. Yeah. I think that eating disorders really affect relationships. When you can't talk about something, it's just like, how do you be, how do you stay friends with somebody? (laughs) Really? Yeah. Right. You can't be honest. And I think that that's like, it's almost like a group dishonesty, right? Well, that's the thing that's been so, I mean, social media and our connected world has its pluses and minuses, but one of the things, your film came out and, you know, I had no idea your film was coming out and it came out and the response instantaneously, it just like opened there's been articles and there've been testimonials by numerous people over the years, not maybe, you know, like one every few years, a prominent person will come out and discuss their issues. Beth Rodden most recently has really been addressing this topic a lot, but it was like literally just people really, the floodgates open. So your film is really touching on something special about like what, what is really making people just want to come forward with their stories, whether they have a, a disordered eating issue or not, but just coming forward with their stories. 
yeah, wow, I never expected that. Like, I'm just blown away. I thought it was like such a risky story and such a personal story. You know, I didn't really, like maybe in the back of my head, I was like, maybe somebody will resonate with this. Maybe climbers will resonate with this, but it's very niche, you know, it was made for climbers, like mm -hmm. for the community, for people. But I think that, um, man, it's, it's amazing. I am just floored, like, so excited to see all the posts like Kyra posting, Allison Vest posting, just like Rolo Garibaldi reached out to me. Like I've heard so many stories from so many people. I mean, hundreds of messages of people who are sharing their personal struggles with me or thanking me. I, I've, I've never experienced anything like it. This is the first film I've ever made. <laughs> I, I'm blown away. I don't know what to say. Yeah, it's, I hope the conversation continues. And, um, and I think that the more people just like normalize talking about it, the better. Let's just, let's just have a group moment to like, admit this. And the, the worst thing is like, some people feel less isolated. Some people feel less alone. Like, that's awesome. You know, when I started this project, I was like, what, what are my goals? And like my number one goal is to help people to not like me help people but the number one goal is to get the message out to as many people who might need to hear it because i felt like it was an important message you know and so seeing that happen is like everything i could have ever wished for yeah clearly it accomplished that there was just this pool waiting for this vehicle to provide them that access to be able to address this. It's like, I thought people didn't want to talk about this, but maybe they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you say, you know, you had pitched stories about this topic throughout your years um, involved with the sport and had not had a lot of success getting the story out there. So obviously this is a passion project for you. How many years in the making was like from development of this idea of wanting to make a film about this to coming to fruition? Um, it was really like uh, July 2019 when I started. But I mean, it's something that I wanted to do for a long time. So basically, I started working on it every day from like April of 2020 until December of 2020. That's when I really started working on it. That's when I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, this is gonna be a film, not just like fundraiser or this or a series or that. I wasn't really sure what shape it would take at first, but when I decided it was gonna be a film and when I decided that I was gonna put my own voice into it, that's when things started to like make more sense and fall into place because I felt like it wasn't right for me to like highlight other people's experiences without going there myself. Like I needed an emotional tie to connect all of these stories and generations, you know? And I think that that's um, one thing that's kind of interesting for me when I watch the film and what I love about it is that you see different generations, you know? So you see the different, the way the idea has been passed down, like these people that, it, that you see it in, they're, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting to see it sort of all together. 
I don't know what I did, dude. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I just made a film. I really, I really don't know. Like, I'm just, you know, so many people resonated with it, you know? I mean, I didn't even put lower thirds in it. Like, I didn't identify any of the people even speaking in the, I didn't, it's a very under, like, it's a very, um, I think this is the first time I haven't, okay, I had an article I wrote for Alpinist, and those are female editors. And Alison Osius is at Rock and Ice, and I've had some things go through her, but you know, that all kind of, and at the end gets edited by men. But this is the first project I've made that's not really, you know, this hasn't gone through a male set of hands. Like, this wasn't edited by a man. This is a female story told by women. Like, let's use some of those strengths as women to like tell a good story, to be open, to be strong. And it did open up the opportunity for male dialogue too. You have Kai Leitner, who's a young ascending male climber who came to prominence really quickly, very talented. He agrees to go on record with you about his struggles and his struggles as a bigger human. And I can like, there's so many things that I think the great thing about your film is that there's so many things that people can relate to for different reasons. Yeah. Gosh, I guess that's like, it feels good when somebody puts your own struggle into words. I love when writers do that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're like, oh my God, I don't even know that person. And, and that's how I feel. They just like, put it into words that I didn't even have myself. You know, that's like the highest compliment as a writer. It's the driveway moment film <laughs> on the topic. <laughs> yeah. And I think that stories are healing. I think it's how we process. I think we need more of them. <laughs> I think we need more good ones told by lots of different people. You know, I hope that continues to happen more. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people knew this was this was on the forefront because I didn't see any like, you know, often you see fundraising going on or um, crowdsourcing to try to fund a project. But, you know, from my perspective, all of a sudden there was this great film that wasn't there the day before. Yay! <laughs> How did you go about doing that? Did you just kind of keep it on the down low or was it, were you pretty public about what you were doing? I mean, I had like a couple trusted friends that I would sort of share, you know, cuts with and be like, what do you think? You know, like Mike Call, John Long. But mainly I worked really closely with my editor, Chelsea. We like to joke that we met on Tinder. We actually met on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure there's a difference. But anyways, um, I found her. I was just looking for somebody to help me edit this. Um, and I had such a low budget. I had like no money to, to, well, I shouldn't say no money, but I had very little money to work on this. And so, you know, I had to find somebody who wanted to work on the project because they cared about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not because of the money. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. It was just kind of like, me and Chelsea going back and forth. I mean, I woke up at like three in the morning almost every day to work on this, which I love, you know, and I'm obsessed about it. And I love that too. And like, then it just kind of a lot of things came together at the end that I really could not have controlled. Like, for example, the send footage of 
um, Angie doing Freaks. She sent that to us like a week before we were, like we were done with the film. She sent that to us. And so then we like, you know, kind of reworked it and like, cause that was like, oh yeah, we gotta have the uncut sin footage, right? Yeah, that was super fun to see. And um, I love the bookend of you know, Angie and Emily, particularly, and Kai, of course, they're so honest about things, but Ange is very honest in the beginning about, feel, you know, she talks about being really light and feeling like she was water flowing over the rock. But then the bookend to that is she does freaks and is able to appreciate how amazing, how much better it feels to be strong versus just being light. Feeling light feels amazing. Everybody who's felt that knows how amazing that feeling is. But what I realized once I started gaining weight again and getting healthier was that you can get that feeling by being strong. And feeling really strong feels even better than feeling really light. I think that that's an incredible bookend for anyone who's gonna be on this journey to be able to get to that point of not needing like they need to feel light, but needing to, or wanting to feel strong. Yeah, and there's a lot of different versions of strong. Like it's not just how hard you can deprive yourself. And being able to break off the relationship with everything that comes with it, like the controls. Because for a lot of people, it's maybe the first thing in their life that they feel like they have total control over. Yeah, and feeling, you know, like you're not enough on your own, like you need this other thing that's gonna make you better, more special, more important, more valuable. Like you're not okay just on your own. And that's so sad to think about so many young women and men, like, or old ones or anybody thinking about that, feeling that way, you know? Because no matter what you do, you're never, it's never going to work, right? And that means that you'll never feel good about yourself. So why not just take food totally like out of the equation and work on like, how do I actually accept myself, you know, where I'm at? How do I, how do I get better? Like, how do I help other people? Yeah, and I know about myself more now at 44. Like, I know that my go-to is like, if I get sad, sometimes it's hard for me to eat because my stomach is like knots. And so I know to like prepare for that. And so kind of like learning about yourself, you know, how do you, how do you deal with your imperfections? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's life. Oh man. Well, I think it's going to be hard to, for the Angie's and Kai's and Emily's who are on the way, the metaphor that comes into my mind is, you know, in the music industry, you see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of drug abuse and a lot of people, you know, they've produced some great, and art as well, some great art while they've been under the throes of a drug influence. And maybe if they're fortunate enough, they come to the other side of that and they can continue on being able to produce great art. But when you look at it as like a timeline, if you're an aspirant, you think, but they use that tool to get to these places. 
So whether it's a drug addiction or a deprivation addiction, how do we get around that step? You know, like the classic, you know, MTV behind the music where you have the ascendance and then you have the crash and then you like rise, Phoenix rising from the flames, but skip that crash part that might also spawn creativity and success. Right. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like, well, I know it's not your job to answer this question, but it's one that burns in my mind. Right. Well, I think some, you know, for me, I have a great family. <laughs> I've loved my parents to death, but you know, there was some traumatic, like there's been a lot of trauma um, in my family, my, you know, and uh, I was a caretaker. So my dad's been essentially bedridden since like 1991. It really is more like 1988 maybe. And I was born in 76. So I've been a caretaker like my whole life. So I, I spent a lot of my life like in the hospital, you know, like going to the hospital, visiting my dad in the hospital. Lots of really like things going on at home that um, now looking back, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I was dealing with that, you know, at 11 and 12 and 13. So I think that that you know, I'm naturally a writer, like I'll naturally gravitate towards being alone and sort of like processing things and like trying to find the right words for them. But when you go through tough experiences, I think you, you feel so different from everybody else, you know? And so I felt like getting away to process and write the thing like for myself has always been so key, you know? But I was drawn towards that. Like, I'm drawn to the more, like, isolative, like, dark. I don't know if it's because I'm, like, try. I tried to be like that. I mean, maybe in my goth stage, which lasted, like, a few months in high school, I tried to be like that. <laughs> you know? But it's sort of, like, I'm kind of drawn to it. It's, I just want to make peace with it. Like, I want to make peace with the darkness. I want to, like, have a conversation with it. I want to not be scared of it. It's a hard thing to to do but a, a very brave thing to do so that you can like deal with it one-on-one on, one on one or with your community yeah and I think it does start with yourself you know you really have to face those things in yourself and that's what I tried to do in the writing was like I was like I know I have to I have to find the imperfections the flaws the judgments all those things within myself we've seen it generations ahead of us and generations that are to come, you know, there are no easy answers. There's no way that you can just say like, okay, this exists and it's going to be something you're probably going to encounter. So just don't let it happen. Right. So it's going to be this completely like, well, hopefully an ending, but possibly a never ending struggle to assist people and let them know that they're special but not so special you're not the first person that's had to deal with this and it's okay to acknowledge it and to deal with it head on i think the way you approach something is like everything right if you approach something with openness and like acceptance it, it changes it changes everything you know versus approaching it with judgment even in ourselves so i think until we see those things in ourselves and we can't really we can't really accept them and others and and you know anything is possible right like if we talk about these things like who knows what will happen like we keep saying this is like been the just like really amazing thing to witness is just 
the explosion of conversation about your film and about the topic in general. And I wonder if more men will come out and talk about their experience with it because it sounds like you had a hard time getting any males to just like really sit down with you and talk about this. Not on camera, yeah, no. But I would say I've gotten like equal messages from men and women since the film came out about their struggles. So it's like 50-50. Yeah, and I feel like that's what I've seen too, that a lot more, like the, the balance was out there more than I expected to see. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason that is. Not because I think that there are fewer men that struggle with this issue, but maybe they're just more reticent about it. Mm-hmm. Were Ange and Emily the first people you approached? Uh, Angie was, yeah. And she was on board right away. Yeah, and I talked to Megan Martin about it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I remember having a conversation like out at Vietnamese dinner with, with Megan and Kevin Takashi Smith about it at the beginning. And Megan was all for it. And then kind of went from there. And I interviewed Emily right before she did Golden Gate, like a couple of weeks before, which was amazing. So amazing. <laughs> oh, I love her. Yeah, she's my hero. They're both, Angie and Emily are both like, I'm like, okay, I have heroes again. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, you have heroes again. I have heroes again. That's a spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the film yet. <laughs> feels good like it feels good you know to be like yeah because I really respect those people not just for what not just for that like achievement in climbing which is great but for who they are you know for for their strength for coming out about it for trusting me with the story I mean they didn't have to trust me they could have been like no way (laughs) I'm not talking about that yeah. You know, but I think they saw the value in in getting the message out to the world, especially with so many climbers coming in because of the Olympics, because of climbing gyms, you know, climbing's growing so much. It's just like when you realize it's not just you, it's not just you and your friends, it's not just at your gym. It's like kind of everything. So I think that they finally, you know, were like, okay, we're ready, you know. And I think a lot of climbers in the moment, like professional climbers in the moment are scared. You know, they're scared to lose sponsorship. They're scared to lose the respect potentially of people. I don't know why that would happen, but um, maybe they're scared that it means they didn't really achieve what they achieved, you know? I think there's some guilt about people who achieve things when they're really, really light and maybe not the healthiest. Some people are just naturally really light. It, you, you really can't tell by looking at somebody, but you know, it's a complex thing, right? Well, yeah, and that's the, the, hard, the hard part, and you address this, is uh, wanting to possibly say something to somebody, but how do you know, unless you know them super well, and as we learned from Emily and, and Angie, even if you know somebody super well, you still might not feel like you have the liberty to say that, mm-hmm. and you don't want to make them feel worse. Or, you know, what, what is the approach? There is no, as we know, there's no one right way that is going to trigger that conversation between two people or someone with themselves. Right, yeah. That's why I made the film. Because <laughs> I wanted to take the pressure off everybody. <laughs> you should check out this film. Uh, 
it also like really made me reflect on, you know, knowing you for a really long time in our climbing world and the amount of time that you have spent behind the lens and what was brewing in your head, like shooting competitions and literally like being able to focus in, you know, just like tighten the aperture or open it, whichever, I don't even know which direction it goes, but to just like zoom in on one person or one body and partially you're documenting event, but also you're documenting part of somebody's life and you're witnessing a moment in their life. And you're clearly thinking, I can't take this image right now, or is this person okay? Yeah, it's hard to see, especially juxtaposed with the amount of praise that people get. And then of course, that praise is perpetuated by photographers like me getting those images in the magazine that must have been intense for your personal journey yeah i mean i want to have a different effect and having to like be in that position where you feel like you can't take an image of somebody because you feel so affected by what you see it's another kind of spoiler alert for those of you that haven't seen the movie but <laughs> i thought that was a really poignant moment yeah, I completely, I was denying it because I wanted to be a professional climbing photographer. And these are the people at the sport, like top of the sport, right? And those are the people that I need to take photos of. But That's at the what. same time, it's like affecting your heart. Yeah, and I got really, you know, started to kind of phase out shooting climbing as much, you know, and started working on other projects and yeah spending a lot of time plant collecting <laughs> down in the four corners. <laughs> oh, I love that. Do yeah, you feel like you stepped away from wanting to do climbing photography because of that? And does this project, now that you know, you've, you've presented this um, film, a lot of it is about being behind the lens and shooting and watching these people. Does it make you want to get more involved with that again? I mean, I can't wait to make another film. I'm just like so excited. Yeah, no, I think that there was a few reasons why maybe I kind of phased um, or just stopped shooting climbing as much. Um, and partly it just felt like such a boys club in terms of like the gatekeepers of the media. And I just, I don't know, I just was interested in more human stories and less of the typical like, oh, okay, like I'm gonna try really hard and I'm gonna do it kind of story. Well, you don't have to tell us right now, but um, do you have anything, <laughs> do you, you don't have to tell us what it is, but do you have anything on the back burner that, or on the front burner that you're jumping into next? Yeah, um, I, there's a couple of things that, I, that I'm really excited about um, potentially working on and we'll definitely, yeah, have this like family documentary that I've been um oh it's, i've i haven't made it yet it's been a really long epic journey of just proving me proving to me that you you can't um force something to work out but anyways i'm going to return to it and it's about neglecting my great grandma was an explorer so she she was a plant explorer and she explored part of northeastern british columbia like in the by the peace river back in the 30s and she went all over the world but mainly in the US um, and the southwest US collecting plants 
um, finding new species and then she brought them back to her home in Philadelphia where there's a garden now and a lot of those plants still live there. But she died in 1967. So my mom and I, this is kind of a long-term project that's just like, who knows if it'll ever get done. But um, then there's some other exciting things too. And of course I have just so many things I wanna write. So um, little stories, you know, um, I love writing. I write every day, you know, I write every morning. Well, I look forward to seeing what's to come from you. And obviously I can't say enough great things about your film light. And it's kind of weird in a way to say that it was a treat or enjoyable or to, to watch a movie about such a difficult topic, but it really was. It really, I think you really did like maximize the metaphor of light and all that it, it brings to opening the discussion about this topic in our sport and in any sport and just in life in general. And I'm just, I'm so proud of you knowing you for all these years that you made this great piece of work and I'm and really enjoying seeing all the positive responses that you're getting and just the dialogue, the dialogue that's coming out. And you did a really great thing and super appreciate that you sat down and talked to me about this today. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. It's the first time I've been on the radio. <laughs> well, you'll be on the radio and on the internet. So, um, so cool. <laughs> so if anyone misses the show, they'll be able to stream it. And um, yeah, it's just been a real treat sitting down with you today. And congratulations on light. Thank you. I just really appreciate it. And I also want to say, like, I can't wait to see more female narratives out there you know, and I taught myself, I didn't know if I could do this. Like, I didn't know how to make a film. I had to teach myself so many things, but it's really empowering, you know, and you can do it. And, and like, I just want to see more, more voices, more diverse voice stories from more diverse voices. Like, it's just like, please, you know, we all need it. I think, because this is just my experience, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just one. Well, it's a great one. And what a freshman effort. <laughs> you should be very proud of yourself. And for all you folks out there listening, you can view Light on YouTube and share it with your friends and anyone, everyone who needs to, to hear this. And I'm sure we can all take away something from this film for our personal lives. Thank you so much, Caroline, and have a great day. Thank you, Lisa. For me, recovery has been a gradual deprogramming. There was no pill or hospital or therapy session. There was no miracle epiphany. I just made peace with it over time, made peace with myself. And it's taken a while. Now I'm proud of my thighs. Now I feel good enough. Sometimes even great, which is awesome. But it's not just about me, and it's not just about my pro-climbing friends in Boulder. It's about all of the people going through this alone, without friends, or family, or therapy, or support from someone like Dr. G. People who don't have a community like climbers do. So how do we break the cycle for everyone? I just feel like it, it could be so different. It could be so much better for the future generation. 
provided that we can talk about it. <laughs> I know that my story is just one story in a multitude of stories that will never be told. I know I'm the stereotype and I didn't get missed. So this is just the beginning, really. The beginning of the story. The beginning of the listening. One step in the darkness. And each voice a light along the path. And one day, when enough of those voices join together, the darkness will lift, like it always does. Light, the documentary film, can be viewed on YouTube. Thank you so much, KZMU listeners from near and from afar, for tuning in to today's installment of Great Wide Open. If you miss the show, it will be posted up on the website for streaming. And I would like to thank Angie Payne, Emily Harrington, Kai Leitner, and Andrea CK for telling their stories, and Megan Martin, Nina Williams, and Dr. G for helping to bring this film to fruition. We'll take you out today with original music for this film by Sorcha Cribbin Merrill, Portland, Maine. Perfectly calm. Your mind is clear and your heart is strong. No one's given any bad advice. For once, didn't stop a thing twice. Cause I